0: Welcome to the Movements Podcast. I'm Steve Addison. Today you're going to hear three short presentations from the Church Resource Ministries Worldwide Conference held in July 2014 in Cancun, Mexico. First up, I'll be sharing a bit of my story, how I got started as a practitioner in disciple-making movements. Then you're going to hear from Norris Williams. He's a cherry farmer who's also a catalyst for disciple-making movements. He brings those two worlds together, and there are some great lessons, and it's an entertaining presentation. Finally, you'll hear from Joe Reed. He asks the question, what comes first? Forming community or making disciples? You'll be surprised at his answer. Hope you enjoy the podcast. There's nothing better than being a published author than when your books actually sell. So I was basking in that glory for a while, and uh, Michelle took me aside, and she said, Steve, you know you've written a very good book on movements. And uh, I was happy to agree. (laughs) Now, guys, there's nothing like you're a success in life and your wife notices it. (laughs) But then, you know, comes the dark night of the soul. (laughs) Michelle follows up with a question. Steve, when are you going to do something? Now, what makes this dark night of the soul even worse, and this is a horrific moment in the life of every married man, God spoke to me through my wife. You know, I was an expert in movements, no one else knew more than I knew. And I was an expert because I scoured the scriptures and the pages of history and every contemporary movement I could find around the globe and distilled the principles. I knew this stuff. I'd talk to people, I'd say, That's it, Steve. And now God is saying to me, Steve, you're an expert. But experts don't make disciples. And that's what I've called you to do. And I look back on 15 years of ministry, of being an expert, being a coach, being a consultant, training. And it's not just I wasn't making disciples, the leaders I was working with weren't making disciples. Not in terms of disciple making movements. And so I went back to my book to try and work out what I should do. It's a good book. (laughs) (laughs) And I had a look at that chapter on contagious relationships. Well, we've got to go prayer walking and look for that person of peace. And so we looked at our schedules. We had an hour and a half a week on a Sunday afternoon and off we went. Prayer walking Box Hill. It's just... Ten minutes from our home, five minutes in the car, where God has sort of parachuted in thousands of people from all over the globe. A lot of them from mainland China. But there are Persians, there are Taiwanese, there are South Americans. And we go prayer walking. Now, there's nothing better than prayer walking because uh, you get to fight the devil. You don't have to talk to a human being. That's a lot scarier, isn't it? But Michelle wants to go into the Chinese bookstore, so in we go. I remind her on the way we don't speak Chinese or read it. We're thumbing through these books we can't read, looking at the pictures, (laughs) when a sales assistant comes across to wonder why we're in her store. She doesn't leave us for the next half an hour. We keep moving on, to walk around the store and she keeps following us wanting to talk. We've met our very first person of peace and I was undone. I was overwhelmed. We went outside. I said, I've got to find somewhere to sit down. We've lived eight years, a few minutes drive from this place and the first afternoon we decide to prayer walk and look for someone who might be responsive to the gospel and connect us to their world. The very first afternoon, God graciously shows up and leads us straight to this young lady. And a whole ministry opens up amongst immigrants in Box Hill. It's years later now. In the last few years, Michelle and I have led more people to Christ into discipleship than in the whole rest of our lives put together. Isn't that amazing? I'm on Michelle's team, by the way. But it's not enough. What we can do is not enough. It's not about my ministry or your ministry. Because when Jesus looks out on Galilee, he sees 200,000 people and he doesn't stay home in Nazareth. He doesn't spend his whole time in Capernaum. Matthew tells us he's going to visit 175 towns and villages. Well, that's what we think it was when Matthew says... Every town and village just in Galilee, Jesus is going to visit before his time is up. And while he does that, he's going to train the men and women who will go to the ends of the earth. And so we started training all around Australia. We're still engaged locally in our own backyard, but now we're training. And it's really complicated. Okay? Get your pens out. It's like, how could you share your story in in just a couple of minutes with someone? How could you pray for a need on the spot with someone? Ask them, if God could do a miracle in your life, what would that be? And could I pray for you? Someone's coming out of prayer. How can you bridge to Discovery Bible Study? Well, you just ask, hey, I'm just wondering right now, do you feel near to God or far from God? God. Would you like to discover how you could be near to God? So how to do discovery Bible study. How to to help somebody through reading the Scriptures in the context of a group of their friends or family begin to follow Jesus as obedient disciples. How to help that group discover what it means to be church. Simple but profound methods. You see, it's a God thing and it's an obedience thing. So we train all over Australia. And now there's a band of people and workers on the ground. Everywhere where we train and people implement, we're seeing folks come to know Jesus. We're not seeing multiplying movements yet, but we're seeing people come to know Jesus and move into discipleship, and that's more than most other people are doing. Our whole ministry changed. We began to recruit differently and train our workers differently. In North India, we have uh, Roger and Delphine Suk. Their grandparents. That's how cruel we are in Australia. We send grandparents to North India. In their mid-sixties, a hundred and ten million people in the state of Bihar. I bet you've never heard of Bihar, one of the most poor and corrupt states in the whole of India. And Roger and Delphine are doing there what we do anywhere in the in the world. If you're with Move, we connect with people. We share up front. We open up the scriptures with Discovery Bible Study. We form new disciples into groups that can become churches and we multiply workers. Ordinary people. Let me tell you about uh, one of their trainees. Uh, Her name is Rita. And this is what she said. Now, when you picture Rita, you see her on the screen. She's about four feet tall. Don't you love that? This is what she said. My name is Rita. I heard the gospel and God blessed us with work and healed our sickness. After a while, God spoke to me and said, I must share his story with others. Now I go and visit villages and tell people about Jesus. Before I came, no one had ever heard of him. That's Rita. Rita met Nilam. And this is what Nilam says. I was all the time having difficulties in life. I had an unknown fear all the time. There was a demonic presence in our house. One day, Rita came to my house and told me the story about Jesus. And I said yes to following Jesus. After meeting Jesus, my whole life changed, my body changed. The demonic presence left our house and my husband changed, she says. Roger and Delphine have mobilized people to the north of Bihar, the south, the east, and the west. They've trained all over that state, and they've raised up workers who do the same. A minimum of 2,000 simple village churches have been started over the last five years. Maybe twenty-five to 30,000 people have come to know Christ. Roger would be here. Roger and Delphine would be here, but he's just turned 70 and is in hospital having an operation. (laughs) But he's doing fine. Where does it begin? It's a God thing and it's an obedience thing. Get some training, do something immediately with what you're learning, And start mobilizing and equipping others. Don't change your job description. Just start doing it where you are right now.
1: Thirty-four years ago, my girlfriend Lori and I, we uh, had that same call in our lives that you do. Compelled by the big idea that go make disciples baptize them and teach them to obey all that i've commanded you and we said to the lord back in 1980 here we are lord send us and we've been living by faith since so 34 years as missionaries Um, and we are grateful to all god's faithfulness and i will tell you that this is what we looked like when we started out had a little three-month-old boy on the front of the horse, and we were ready to go. Uh, Family grew, four children. We now have grandchildren, still living by faith, still seeing him. And one of the things that changed for us as we became missionaries, and we started receiving support, there were men and women going out and working really hard, and they were taking some of their money, and they were giving it to us. And that really was a motivating factor for us, that we needed to produce something. We needed to have a return on this investment that people were giving in us. And so for all of our missionary career, we have determined to produce something, produce some kind of fruit. So that is uh, where we're going to talk this morning. I am the true vine. And my Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You know, every business has a bottom line. They have to produce something, or they go out of business. And I don't believe that we as missionaries are off the hook in producing something. And the only way to produce fruit is to prune. Now, the other thing that I am is a cherry farmer. Okay? And we had 35 cherry trees that were producing the same amount of fruit every year. So for the last year, I've been taking pictures of what we've been doing to actually produce more fruit. I apologize for all the visuals. But in order to produce fruit, sometimes it's really hard work. And it's very painful work. Many people said, do not take these trees out. They're big and beautiful, but they had reached their maturity. They were producing the same amount every year. So my son and I went to work. And it was hard work. And not only that, you have to pull up the roots. Because the roots go deep and so after having these beautiful trees then you spend all you're doing is planting these little sticks literally that's all it is, is a stick you put in the ground you know the first thing you do to that stick after you put it in the ground the very first thing thing—anybody know what you do you take a pair of loppers and you cut it off you cause pain to the tree that's the only way it will start to grow so then you begin to train the trees. This is the hard work of discipleship. This is the hard work of growing fruit. We now have 400 trees where we had 35 trees. And every one of these trees have to be trained to produce fruit. What they want to do is to grow up and produce leaves and look really pretty. That's what a tree wants to do. In order to produce fruit, it requires work. And so you have to take these branches... And you have to look at the tree. You walk up to the tree and you say, now which branches are going to produce fruit? And which need to come off? And you take your loppers and you prune it back. And then the ones that you want to grow fruit, you train them. This is pulling these branches down. You take a string, you drive it into the ground. That string comes up and what you do, you pull the branch so that it's level to the ground. It exposes the top of the branch to the sun. And that creates fruit wood. So you have to do that with all 400 trees. And it's a lot of work. Discipleship is really hard work. Training people to produce food. So this is looking across after getting all the trees. Now you can see there's no leaves on these trees. So this is way in advance of the harvest. This is during that winter months when you can see. And you're the one that comes up and does the work. Then your trees, they, uh, sometimes I just wanted to show uh, Dave Miles and Dave Brooks this picture here, if I can go back one, because sometimes you have to do a restart. (laughs) (laughs) This is what we call a restart in in the cherry business. Sometimes it's, there's nothing worth saving. You cut it all back and hopefully it'll grow. And sometimes they die. So right in the midst, you see all the trees growing, some trees die. Some trees stop producing fruit, and that's okay. We can plant another one. Then as the trees start to mature, you can see that the uh, everywhere that you see a bloom here has the potential to be a cherry. Every bloom can turn into a cherry. And you can see that as things start to mature, the blooms are big. But you, as the orchardist, you have to take careful attention and pay careful attention to every tree you see inside of that is a sucker starting to suck energy but it's hidden you can't see it you have to go to work and the enemy is just like that he puts these hidden things in our lives that will take energy and cause us to not produce fruit as the as the orchardist that's your job so you got to find them sometimes trees get eaten by the enemy. This is the deer that came through my orchard. Everywhere that that deer chews on my tree, those branches will no longer produce anything. So what did we do? That deer is now in the freezer. Okay? So we're eating cherry uh, venison. That's what we call it. Because uh, just payback—that's where you have to be ruthless about things like this. Okay? <laughs> Here are the tools of the orchardist. You see this tree? This is this is a, 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 an apricot tree. And everything on the ground under that tree grew in one year. You know, what we call those branches on the ground. Who knows what those are? Suckers. Suckers grow beautiful leaves, but they don't produce fruit. And you have to prune that tree every year or those suckers will take take over. And they suck all the energy out of the tree. These are the tools to grow fruit. There's no other way. You gather up all the ones that aren't going to produce fruit and you burn them. Just as the scripture says. And then the fruit starts coming up. Now look at that. Some people might look and say, wow, look at all that fruit. You know, that's a cluster of apricots. That's because the tree, the pruning process tells the tree, I'm going to die. Somebody is taking loppers to me. Somebody is taking a chainsaw to me. I have to produce fruit or I'm going to die. So they produce this cluster of apricots. Now, if you leave those apricots just like that, they will never mature because there's no room for them to grow. They will never mature, become a tasty fruit, and their seed will never produce another tree. So you have to then thin the tree. So in that same spot, you have to give room for this fruit to grow. And on the ground, you'll see... That there are thousands of, of of apricots that you just toss on the ground, and I'm telling you, when you first start doing this, it's hard to do, because you want this fruit, but if you leave all that fruit on the tree, at the end of that day, you'll have nothing, because the fruit won't mature. There's uh, Lori doesn't get paid, but she does a great job of thinning the trees. But then you do all this work, and here are all these beautiful trees. Look at this one here. It just died. And you don't know why. You can e- I even tried duct tape. See? <laughs> it just died. And that's okay. Sometimes you've got to shake the dust off your feet and move on plant another tree. Then the fruit begins to grow. It starts to mature. And then this may be the most important picture of all. I think that this is a picture of missionary work. Because sometimes all you're going to do be is the prop pole for the fruit bearers. When we go out and actually do discipleship, the ones that produce fruit, the fruit can get so heavy that if you don't prop up the branch, it will break. And that fruit-bearing branch is lost. So you have to go and you have to strategically prop up these branches that are holding the fruit that becomes heavy. Otherwise, you'll lose it. And I see that as my role. I've got to find those national leaders that... Or the leaders in my community that are going to produce fruit in places I can never produce fruit. And then how do I keep them in the game? How do I help them stay in the game? And so here's that apricot tree now. You can see it starting to produce. We have to prop it up. It's getting heavy. It's time for harvest. The cherries are all growing. I mean, literally, the the day before coming here, I finished harvesting our cherries. Picking them. And all, the, all that work now is paid off. You do the same thing with raspberries. Here's Lori. Every morning she goes out and picks all of these raspberries. Every morning, that and more. And the only reason, because we pruned the raspberries. We cut out the old canes and made room for the new canes to grow. And it's nothing but work. If you want to have a harvest. So now it's harvest time where we live. And the fruit, the cherries, the apricots. If you want fruit, this is what you have to do. And I'm going to say just a couple more things that the Lord has been telling me. You don't get to prune yourself. Okay? You got to let somebody prune your life. And if we want to continue to, to, to grow fruit and produce fruit, we don't grow the tree of CRM. And for us to go on and produce fruit, we're going to have to prune not only ourselves, but our collectives. And we have to be ruthless about it. Interchange, Church Next, Beta, Ethne, Conex Partners, CRM, the board, Norris. And it's going to require a lot of hard work. Because our job to glorify God is to bear more fruit. It's not to grow beautiful trees. And whatever is not bearing fruit, we have to be ruthless. And guess what? Nobody likes to be pruned. The tree doesn't like it. I don't like it. But that's the only way to get to the harvest. Is to allow yourself to be pruned. To have somebody speak into your life. And say, what about this? What about this? What about this? What can you stop doing? What can you start doing? And if we want to have fruit, we've got to be willing to be pruned. As an organization, as individuals. Because that's what we're here to do in this mission world. Is to go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that I command. And everything that gets in the way of that, we've got to be willing to cut away. As an organization and as individuals. I'm just a cherry farmer, though.
2: George Bernard Shaw once said that if history repeats itself and the unexpected always happens, how incapable must man be of learning from experience? I'm a testimony that personal history offers a wellspring of wisdom for future ministry preparation. I have over a decade of lessons that have cost me sleepless nights, a receding hairline, and journals full of failed moments. This morning, I'd like to share with you a few of the key lessons that I've been learning along the way so far. My wife Natalie and I, along with our kids, spent five wonderful years in South Africa. Pretoria is where we had cut our teeth as being missionaries with CRM. But as our time there was drawing to a close, Natalie and I came to the conviction that God was inviting us into a new season to open a new area of ministry, taking all that we had learned in Africa and applying it into a new context, a context that would be new for us as well as for CRM. So after lots of prayer and discernment, We believed that God was inviting us to step foot into the Northeast United States. So last year, we packed up our kids, and we relocated to Boston, Massachusetts. Now, our experience in South Africa had been extensive, and and one of the things that became bedrock conviction for us was the necessity of community for healthy ministry life. No one is an island and we believe that God desires us to be in this thing with one another. So, in our initial months into going into Boston, we focused a great deal of energy, prayer, and time with people, trying to find more CRM staff to join our core team. We believed that ministry life, whatever that means, couldn't really start until we had our core community in place. So we began conversations with friends and others whom we believed could share our vision of movements of the gospel of Jesus across, sweeping across the Northeast. We dreamed and we thought a lot about whom we would want to be teamed up with. But for a variety of reasons, no one's joined us. Our recruiting efforts did not stop us from getting to know our context. But after a year of not finding one person who was ready to sign up, raise the support it would take, and move into the frigid Boston, we felt like failures. Honestly, I took it personally when people turned us down. Sometimes after months of praying and brainstorming and strategizing together, I bought the lie that nobody wanted to work with me. I'm too hard-charging, I'm too intense, I'm too whatever that might be. I was choosing to equate having full-time staff on my team with having deeper community, wider mission, and honestly, greater personal success. I really started to wonder if I'd heard God correctly originally, if He had really called us here. We considered quitting Considered moving teams somewhere else. Or just leaving the ministry life and getting a job. Was this really what God had called us into? But this is a lie. And the deceiver was trying to take us out before we had ever gotten started. And I've learned these lessons before. A few months ago, I woke up in the middle of the night, gripped with my personal insecurity and fear. You, you might know that feeling. You wake up in a cold sweat. And I was saying to myself, what have I gotten us into now? But then something started to dawn on me again. And in that moment of doubt, I sensed Jesus with me, amongst me, telling me the truth about what was happening and why it was happening this way. He reminded me in that moment that He is the Lord of this harvest and that His plans are significantly better designed than anything we have come up with to date. And He invited me that night to wake up the next morning walking through the relational doors that He had been opening for us across New England. But it was in my drive to form community first that I lost sight of the core mission, which was to see a discipleship movement sweep across New England. My train of thinking was diminishing my ability to accomplish the things that God had set before us to do, to embed the good news of Jesus into one of the driest, parched regions in North America. I believe that Jesus had to take me through this wilderness once again dealing with these seeming failures to teach me two critical lessons about the fullness of our apostolic calling. First, because I was unable to recruit community to come towards me, I had to change my starting points. I began to pursue discipling relationships in our context And we began to find a much more diverse and rich community experience than I had ever experienced before. My recruiting, and maybe it's like yours, always focuses on getting this all-star cast around us. But that's not what I ever saw Jesus do in the gospel. I often see how Jesus chose the misfits... And somehow that always resulted in exponential discipleship movement across towns, villages, and cities. The second lesson that I've been learning flows directly out of this first one. That when I shifted my primary focus to making disciples in my context... I found that the scope of our apostolic calling is considerably more expansive than I had ever understood it originally. Investing in the life of people of peace that the Spirit has brought consistently before us has always seemed to lead to relationships in places I never would have been looking. These relational pathways are now moving beyond my neighborhood in Boston. And they are spreading out across the city. And now even, yes, after one year in New England, across the region, Jesus does that. But when I remain fixated on my seeming failures, when I remain fixated on the things that I did not have, I was unable to see the open doors that the Spirit had been cracking open all around us. I believe that God did not grant us what we thought we needed. Because he knew that to reach the northeast region, we were going to need different things. And here's what I'm learning. That community is formed when disciples are made. Because healthy disciples will form community. This lesson has created space for significant wins for the kingdom. I may not have had an expansive staff of all-stars next to me when we started in New England, but now I have a growing community and they're in the room tonight. And I have ministry teams that are beginning to emerge across the city and yes, even out into the region. Because I believe that the scope of our apostolic calling is expansive and it's our calling. And when we set our focus squarely on the mission of making disciples in our regions, community appears more diversely, more broadly than we could have ever imagined. And friends, this, this is the good news for the broken. This is the good news for the enslaved. And this is the good news for the orphaned in our context where we are embedded across the world. So may God's kingdom come more expansively in the regions where we are embedded. Because today we choose to pursue mission for the sake of the communities of the once lost that he will find. Amen.